Thank you for listening to this Podcast One production. Available on Apple Podcasts and Podcast One. Happy Friday, everybody, and welcome to episode 17 of the Snyder Cut. I've now been hosting the show for, I guess, upwards of four months. Pretty wild. We have uh, we are still on the air. <laughs> I have managed not to uh, to lose my podcast with my with my loose lips that could sink ships. Uh, I am your loyal host, Jeff Snyder. Haven't missed an episode. Uh, hopefully, you guys can say the same. We've got a half show today because we are going to close it out with an interview uh, of the with the director of Scandalous. Uh, that is a documentary about the National Enquirer, and it is excellent. Excellent, sorry, excellent. <laughs> it is excellent. Uh, I really had a blast with this documentary, and so stay tuned for our interview with director Mark Landsman, who just has some great stories about about making it. I mean, the National Enquirer really has been in the middle of so many juicy scandals, and they've they've like had a real impact on U.S. history. When you when you see the documentary, you'll understand what I mean. Uh, so yeah, tune into that uh, interview at the end of this episode. Let's start then, since we have to abbreviate the show. With the news that Netflix has acquired the rights from Paramount to make Beverly Hills Cop 4. This is interesting news. I mean, I think for as long as I can remember, basically since I got to Los Angeles, Paramount has been trying to make Beverly Hills Cop 4. At one point, Brett Ratner was going to do it. Uh, Always bringing back Eddie Murphy this project has just stalled in development. I have, I really haven't heard much about it over at Paramount. Um, I think it has the same directors as, as Bad Boys for Life attached, I believe. Um, and so, with you know, it's just kind of languishing there and just costing Paramount money by having to develop and redevelop and you know, et cetera, et cetera, all these script drafts that I'm sure that they've paid for over the last decade. So now Netflix comes in and they're like, "Listen, we'll we we will actually make this movie. They we are invested in Eddie Murphy, who is in My Name Is Dolomite and is getting you know awards buzz for that. They're I think that they've paid Eddie for." A stand-up special or multiple specials, possibly, but he's definitely planning a return to the stage. And so, yeah, now that they have sort of invested in him the same way that they have with Adam Sandler, you know, he he's he is or was at one point a legitimate movie star. They're like, all right, we we will make Beverly Hills Cop four, and so I don't know. This is I thought it was fascinating, like. I think it's it's found money for Paramount because otherwise the money like the title is just sitting over there languishing in development hell. This way, you know, Netflix does the hard part of of, of making the movie and and paying for the movie and everything, and and Paramount gets a, a license fee. So I think it's a win all around. I think it's a win for Eddie Murphy because this is his signature role. Like Axel Foley is one of the great movie characters, and when I and I think on FYC. This week, uh, we were talking about Eddie Murphy and Dolomite, and Scott Mance said Dolomite is like the defining Eddie Murphy performance, which made my eyes practically pop out of my head. I mean, no, I, I don't care. Like, people just, they, they, they love saying that about all, all the new stuff. Eddie Murphy's not going to top Axel Foley. That is what he is on the big screen. It's not the Nutty Professor. It's not Prince Akeem. He's Axel Foley. So it, it will be great to see him uh, reprise that role. I imagine that they'll try to get uh, Rosewood, w- uh, sorry, Rosewood and Taggart back. But other than that, I think that they should try to, I don't know, open this up. Maybe maybe it's a Passing of the Torch kind of movie where there's a younger Axel Foley. They tried to do that with the TV show that I don't even think got picked up. I think it was with uh, Brandon T. Jackson. I don't know what direction they're going to go with this, but... It'll be fun. It'll be fun to to hear that music again. I mean, the last Beverly Hills Cop, I think, came out when I was just like a child. Like, it must have been early 90s, 93 or 94 from John Landis. And even though I enjoyed it because it was set at like an amusement park, um, I don't think it's remembered particularly fondly. Uh, So this is a chance for, for Axel to reclaim his legacy. I dig it. Elsewhere at Paramount, so they announced that, uh, or I guess I scooped this week, that they are doing a remake of Internal Affairs. Not Infernal Affairs. Not Infernal Affairs. That's the Hong Kong movie that was turned into The Departed. 
This is Internal Affairs, which is a 1990 Mike Biggis crime thriller starring Richard Gere and Andy Garcia. I had actually never seen it, and I started watching it yesterday. I'm about halfway through. It's not great. It's not great, but that just means that there's room for improvement. I do like – it's a great title, Internal Affairs. People understand, like, these are the cops that are trying to catch the other cops. Um, I think that there's, you know, a lot of anger, as I was saying on Movie Talk this morning, a lot of anger just around police in this country. Um, and I don't know. This this could be interesting if they get the right two stars and the right director. I mean, you could say that about pretty much every movie. All movies are execution-dependent. Um, but yeah, with the right two stars, if you got like Jake Gyllenhaal and Michael Fassbender going at it, I, I, like, I'm, I'm in. I'm in to see that movie, and especially if they can keep the the budget relatively cheap twenty thirty million. This could be a solid double. You know, not every movie that you greenlight has to be designed to be a home run. They don't all have to be hundred million dollar movies. So I like this idea of internal affairs. We'll see if I if I like the the, uh, the second half of the original. It, uh, yeah, it's it's definitely not great because I just I love like I love Primal Fear with Richard Gere. I love Jennifer Eight with Andy Garcia. I love seeing those guys, whether it's investigate crimes, solve crimes, defend crimes, etc. I love these kinds of movies, but this one doesn't seem like a, a classic yet. Yet, um, Mark Wahlberg. Signing on or being in, in, in final negotiations, at least, to play Sully Sullivan in the Uncharted movie. Now, this one is interesting because Wahlberg was going to play Nathan Drake like a decade ago, practically, when David O. Russell was going to direct the Uncharted movie. And like at, at 48 years old, is Mark Wahlberg now the mentor character? Has he sort of segued into that role? It's a role... Like, I mean, you can't put an age on it because Tom Cruise is someone who has, like, refused to uh, take on those mentor roles. Like, he still feels like he is the star, the main attraction. And, I I mean, Mark Wahlberg still fits that bill for me. But, uh, like, I guess he has a certain ceiling, Mark Wahlberg, when he's not in, like, a big IP, like a Transformers kind of thing. This is a big IP. And maybe that's why he wants to be a part of it. I mean, he he is doing some different stuff. He has the Peter Berg movie Wonderland, which is unlike his other sort of Peter Berg movies of late, uh, which are all great. I love them all. Um, and he also has that Good Joe Bell movie up at A24. Like Mark Wahlberg in an A24 movie, that is kind of different. It signals maybe a, a shift in strategy or change in, in his direction um and and so i like this for him this is like a big it's a big movie it 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 it's i think it's gonna have an like an interesting kind of tone it's an adventure movie it's gonna feel like a sort of tomb raider type of thing tom holland is obviously playing the young nathan drake so so sully is his mentor sort of kind of like a father figure i don't know if mark Wahlberg is quite old enough to pull that off um or maybe he just feels young like you know i don't know if john ham is Older or younger than than Mark Wahlberg, but John Hamm seems like somebody who could have maybe pulled this off. It's just interesting that Mark Wahlberg's coming back to this project to play a different character. He is going to be working with Travis Knight, which I, I imagine had to be part of the appeal, uh, because he already approved Travis Knight to direct the $6 billion man up at Warner Brothers. So those two were already developing this when Travis Knight, you know, had to go focus on Uncharted. And maybe, you know, he brought along Mark Wahlberg or maybe Wahlberg reached out to him and was like, hey, you know, I remember that project. And there was this other character like, you know, what do you think about me? I don't know who approached who or whose idea it was, but I think it's a coup for the project. Mark Wahlberg is, you know, there aren't a whole lot of movie stars left. And I, and I think I would consider Mark Wahlberg to be one. Um, and, yeah, to, to get a sort of veteran movie star presence in that film alongside Tom Holland, I think it... It bodes well, bolsters it a bit because it is kind of a risk. I imagine I can't imagine how much money Sony has spent just on development alone. I also wanted to talk about, let's see, Prince of Cats. Let's go to that one, the Spike Lee project up at Legendary. This has been brewing for a few years. It's an adaptation of a graphic novel by Ron Wimberly, and it's like. 
the Romeo and Juliet story as told through the eyes of Tybalt. And at one point, Lakeith Stanfield was going to play Tybalt. That's no longer the case, which is too bad, because I actually think he would have been really interesting in a Spike Lee movie. Um, and I guess Tybalt sort of presides over these like sword, like katana duels. He loves a good duel. And, uh, yeah, he, he's like feuding with the Montagues. And it's like this whole sort of world where there's breakdancing and DJs and MCs. And I don't know that this is necessarily up Spike Lee's alley. Like, I'd, I'd kind of be surprised if he ultimately ended up directing this just because it doesn't seem like the kind of thing that would appeal to him. But it is set in Brooklyn, and obviously, you know, Spike Lee has a ton of affinity for that neighborhood. I feel like half his movies are set in Brooklyn. So I I imagine that the setting was part of the appeal here. Um, Spike Lee, a Spike Lee love story. There is something, you know, Spike Lee does a great job of capturing, you know, black love and lust and, I don't know, the complexities of sex and, and relations between men and women. And so... I don't know, the idea of him tackling something really tragic like Romeo and Juliet, I, I don't know that, that I can see it. But at the same time, I don't know, a black Romeo and Juliet, which I assume is what this will be, could be pretty interesting. Like, I'm just imagining something very visual, almost like Boz, like if Boz Lerman, who did The Get Down, Moulin Rouge and like his take on uh, he did Romeo and Juliet but like a Baz Luhrmann style movie with a black cast that would be interesting I just don't know if that's what Spike Lee has planned um Ryan Destiny cast as T-Rex aka Clarissa Shields the boxer up in Universal's Flint Strong this is quite the prestige project that they have when you think about it they've got Rachel Morrison the only uh, or the first woman nominated for best cinematography she shot Mudbound she went on to shoot Black Panther she is making her feature directorial debut on this project uh, Clarissa T-Rex Shields was like the first American woman to win a gold medal in boxing, or I think just like maybe even the first woman period, because she won in 2012, which was the first year that the Olympics uh, had women's boxing as a as a, an official sport. Uh, Barry Jenkins wrote the script, which is you know a big deal. He won an Oscar for Moonlight. Mike DeLuca is producing. So between Rachel Morris and Barry Jenkins, Mike DeLuca, there's a lot of firepower here. Ryan Destiny is someone who's from Michigan, grew up in Detroit. Uh, obviously, that's that's not Flint, but it, you know, it's she she must understand Clarissa Shields's uh, background. Clarissa Shields overcame. I think she was sexually abused by her mother's boyfriend, uh, and, and she found strength in Christianity. Ryan Destiny, an up and coming actress who starred on Star, the Fox series. She's also on Grownish, and she started out as a singer. Um, it's been a while. Like I, I really like Girl Fight with Michelle Rodriguez. I like Million Dollar Baby with Hil Hilary Swank. This could be a, a powerhouse project for Universal. So, you know, I, while I haven't seen Ryan Destiny, I'm not familiar with her work. Uh, I like her look. I think that she at least looks like T-Rex Shields. It's going to be a very physically and emotionally demanding role. But, you know, if, if those three... Uh, particularly DeLuca, feels like she's up for it. Like, I'm, I'm down to check out this movie, Flint Strong. Uh, speaking of young black actresses, we broke the news on Monday. We were off on Monday, but Batman doesn't take a holiday, guys. Jamie Lawson has landed an unspecified role in the Batman. Uh, Jermaine Lucier over at io9 said that I think that she's playing... Bella, some up-and-coming politician character. Now, that's not confirmed at this time. There was obviously plenty of speculation about her being either cast as Barbara Gordon as Batgirl or Holly Robinson or, you know, who knows? Uh, there's no official announcement. But I do know that it is a significant role. And for this actress to, to book the Batman, which is probably the hottest project in town, you know, coming straight out of Juilliard is very impressive. So she is going to be an, an up-and-coming talent to keep an eye on. Uh, I, you know, I, I didn't really get a chance to 
find out much about her. There wasn't that much online. Uh, you know, I, I read up on, about her on the Juilliard website and some, uh, f- you know, crowd funding projects that she was putting together uh, to, to continue making uh, student films at at, uh, at Juilliard and whatever. But I don't know. She seems like a, a bright young talent, and uh, I don't know. It it it, it bode well. Like I like seeing Matt Reeves take a chance on on a newcomer. I know I said I was sort of iffy on the Batman. It's not like this one casting brings me back because I don't even know who who this actress is. But I don't know. It, it was nice to just not see somebody like throwing name after name after name at a comic book movie, which you know these things can often be, as we know. Um, Brendan Gleeson in talks to join Macbeth. This is one that I, I bet you'd forgotten about. Joel Cohen is is directing this solo. He's not working with Ethan Cohen. I don't know what Ethan is off doing. Maybe he just needed a break. But uh, Joel Cohen, this is his original adaptation of Macbeth. I don't know if it'll hew closely to the source material by Mr. William Shakespeare or if he'll take things in a completely different direction and, and reinvent it like a Scotland PA did or something like that. But it's got Denzel Washington and Francis McDormand, Oscar winners as Macbeth and Lady Macbeth. And Brendan Gleeson is in talks to play King Duncan. Now, I could not get, you know, like real hard confirmation on this, but I have a feeling that this deal is going to work out. Uh, Brendan Gleeson is also supposed to play Donald Trump in a CBS miniseries based on that Comey uh, book. And like a higher loyalty. I think that's what it's called. So, you know, scheduling could be an issue, but I don't recall King Duncan being a particularly meaty role. Like, you know, it's all about how Macbeth is trying to assume the throne, uh, which means that the throne must be vacant, which means the King Duncan, if you've never read Macbeth, meets an untimely fate. Uh, so, yeah, I can't imagine he would be needed on set too much. They still got a cast... Banquo and Macduff and the witches and uh, it'll be very interesting to see who who scores all these roles in A24's uh, adaptation of Macbeth being produced by Scott Rudin. Elsewhere, Paramount won a heated bidding war for Damien Chazelle's Babylon. That was something I also looked into over the weekend. Uh, and hours after emailing Paramount, they they dated the movie and. Uh, so, yeah, it's coming out, I think, on Christmas 2021, I want to say. Brad Pitt, Emma Stone, still circling the project. Uh, if Emma Stone's deal makes, I believe that she'd be playing Clara Bow, the old movie star. I think Anime Wong also has a role. Sure, she's a character in this. She's, she doesn't have a role, um, but she is a character in this. So they'll be casting a, an Asian actress. And then uh, Irving Thalberg, the, the mogul. I've heard has a role in this. I don't know if, if Toby Maguire will end up playing that character or not. He is producing the movie. But uh, Paramount beat out Lionsgate and Netflix for this one. Damien Chazelle, you know, coming off of First Man, which didn't really do that well and, and was kind of a non-starter in terms of uh, the awards conversation. But La La Land wasn't that long ago. Damien Chazelle still a hot commodity in this town. And Paramount, you know, they don't have superheroes to fall back on they don't have a fast and furious to to fall back on i mean i I guess outside of like the mission impossible franchise which i think is the best actor franchise going so they gotta they gotta they gotta win bidding wars like this i think that they're also doing killers of the flower of uh of the flower moon the scorsese project with the nero and leo i think so you know they, they need to tackle these kinds of literary projects and also, like, music biopics, like, you know, with, with Rocketman, which may not have done as well as Bohemian Rhapsody, but I don't think Paramount has any real regrets when it comes to Rocketman. Um, we will definitely keep you posted on casting for Babylon as it continues. Over at Disney, Jonah Howard King has landed the role of Prince Eric. Now, this is, uh, you know, billed as, as a downgrade from, from Harry Styles, obviously. This, guy, this guy's no Harry Styles. I don't even know who he is. But it's not, also not super fair because Harry Styles, you know, he it's just like anything with Harry Styles, it's going to get reported on early. And it may have been a little unfair that we reported on Harry Styles being in talks 
when we did. I don't know if trade reports actually threw off that deal making. Uh, it's it was interesting because I, I do I actually do remember like getting someone in the know to sign off on that to be like yeah listen he he is in talks and and we feel like it's going to make i mean it's early days but we wouldn't be saying it's probably going to happen if it wasn't so i don't know why he he really walked away i don't know if it was a scheduling thing if he didn't like the script if he just didn't want to be you know a disney prince so to speak if that wasn't sort of the image that he's trying to cultivate now in hollywood but uh you know I, i'm going to go into this with an open mind on jonah howard king he is no harry styles he is sort of the first unknown uh, or at least i don't know him uh to be cast in this movie but i guess it's 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 unfair to just be like oh well he's no harry styles um and you know i mean harry styles he was good in dunkirk i thought that he did everything that chris nolan asked him to but you know, he also wasn't – he didn't have to play a romantic lead like he would have in, in Little Mermaid. And uh, particularly with the, with the actors who they were going to cast Harry Styles opposite. Like, I, he may need, like, a stronger scene partner. So he may have, like, felt like it was – it would have left him exposed and whatever. We'll see what actually comes of this Little Mermaid project. It was always one of my favorite animated movies, uh, Disney movies. So this is one live-action adaptation that I may actually make time to go see. Um, over at Warner Brothers in the DC universe, Todd Phillips is talking about a Joker sequel. Now that the film has grossed basically a billion dollars, I hope that it doesn't happen. I hope that he leaves it as a standalone. I think that, you know, with the exception of like the Godfather or alien, like, you know, great movies don't really get sequels <laughs> and home alone. Can't forget home alone. Um, yeah, I just uh, if a sequel was not part of the plan and and money is like the is the real motivating factor. I mean, which I, I suppose it is for every single movie that gets greenlit. Uh nobody nobody greenlights a movie hoping to lose money. I I just unless there is a great idea for it, I think that they should leave it alone. I think that this was a special comic book movie featuring a special performance, and I don't know that I necessarily want to see Joaquin inhabit that character all over again and risk it not being quite as strong and, and, and you know damaging his legacy as the Joker character. So let's hope that these are just threats from Todd Phillips. Black Adam released a poster. You heard me talk about it on uh, on Movie Talk. It looked cool, like you know, it looked pretty badass. I I, I don't understand why all these superhero suits are kind of like the, the exact same. Um, but I am excited to see The Rock as Black Adam. Uh, looking forward to seeing who they get, you know, who, uh, how they fill out the supporting cast of this movie, and also what the tone is going to be because it does look significantly darker than Shazam, which you know I thought it was supposed to be of a piece with that film. Uh, Clive Owen just cast as Bill Clinton in Impeachment, American Crime Story. I voted American Crime Story basically the the second best TV show of the decade behind Breaking Bad, and I stand by that. I loved the People vs. O.J. Simpson. I loved uh, Versace, the assassination of Gianni Versace, um, which is really the Andrew Cunanan story. And this Bill Clinton, uh, Monica Lewinsky one impeachment sounds like it'll be equally fascinating. Clive Owen and Beanie Feldstein, that is an odd pairing on paper. Going to be weird to watch that unfold, but... I don't know. Clive Owen as Bill Clinton. I can, I can see that. I can kind of see that. Uh, so I'm definitely looking forward to that. Uh, I wish that American Crime Story was a little bit more regular with its schedule, but it's like True Detective. You can't, you can't rush greatness, can you, folks? Um, this week on For Your Consideration, we dove headfirst into the Best Actor race, and that is a, a very competitive race. It's a competitive category, so make sure to to watch our predictions on that. I think we all we had four of the same ones, and then we were all kind of all, all over the place for the fifth slot there. I I don't know if all if we're going to be right about all four. I do sense Leo DiCaprio being a little bit weaker than maybe how we framed him. Again, I think so much of this is going to be about passion. So, like, if every everybody may be able to agree that Leo was like really good in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, I don't think anyone is necessarily calling it like his best performance. Um, and so will someone who thinks that, I don't know, 
Antonio Banderas delivers the best performance of his long career. Jonathan Price delivers the best performance of his long career in in the two popes. Like, will that will those passion votes sort of get in over a performance that everybody can agree was really good, but maybe not quite great? Um, what else? What else? What else? A bunch of trailers and, and stuff like that and movies that I saw this week. First of all, I wanted to say on Monday or no, it's not Monday night. On Wednesday night, I went to see Mike Birbiglia's new one man show. It's called The New One. It's very much about family and, and whether to have a baby or not have a baby. And uh, he's just a great storyteller, Mike Birbiglia. So if you live in Los Angeles and can get to the Amundsen before Thanksgiving, because I think that this show ends around November 24th, I highly, highly recommend it. I had an absolute blast. My sides hurt from laughing within the first 10 minutes. Um, and if you can't get to it or don't live in Los Angeles, I believe that this special is coming to Netflix within the next month. So be sure to check it out there. Mike Birbiglia, just super funny. And when people say, you know, you can't be funny anymore uh, because you, you can't offend anybody or you can't risk offending anybody, blah, 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 blah. Like, he is very clean, Birbiglia. Um, you know, there's the occasional curse word. But for the, he doesn't go after people or ethnicities, minorities. Like, it's just really it, – it's kind of like – it's a bit white bread and old-fashioned, but he's just a, such a good writer and so such a, uh, an inviting presence on stage. I just had a great time at Mike, with uh, Mike Birbiglia, so check that out. There were trailers released for The Way Back this week. This is the Ben Affleck as an alcoholic basketball coach. I thought it looked great. This is like and, – and because Affleck is very savvy about playing off of his own image. Think about Gone Girl and how Gone Girl may not have been as good as it is – if it wasn't Ben Affleck, who's sort of playing on his own image, I feel like, in that movie. Uh, and so it seems like he's doing it again. Obviously, we know Ben Affleck has struggled with addiction, with alcoholism. So this may hit a little bit closer, close to home for him. But it looks like a real kind of tour de force. I've always thought Affleck is a better actor than he's gotten credit for. Because Matt Damon is the one who is constantly nominated for awards or thought to be in the awards conversation at least and ben affleck doesn't really get the benefit of the doubt there even though he has more oscars if i'm not mistaken um yeah i'm I'm looking forward to the way back not just because i i like basketball and it's been a while since we had a good basketball movie and i like these kinds of inspirational sports dramas but it's it's to see my man ben really do some emoting because the last time he worked with Gavin Hood, not Gavin Hood, Gavin O'Connor, excuse me, forgive me, uh, Gavin O'Connor, director of the great sports movie Warrior, and it's, you know, I mean, so that's that's one reason why I'm so excited to, uh, for this is to see him tackle another sports movie. But the last time that he worked with Gavin O'Connor was on The Accountant, in which you know he didn't really get to emote due to the nature of the character. This looks like Ben going big, and this is the kind of thing I want to see him in. Um, there was also a trailer for Fantasy Island, which looks like a blast. Like, I remember when this was announced, and I was like, what the hell is this? Like, that old TV series with the little guy, and, and I was like, eh, how do you turn this into, a, like, a, a hit horror franchise? It seems like it's going to be just that for Blumhouse. They had just have the magical, the magic touch with this kind of thing. Like, you know, Truth or Dare... I, that, that's a movie I didn't really care for, but like that's a hit, and I think that they're already developing a sequel to that. Uh, Escape Room, that's not Blumhouse, but that's another kind of thing where the audience just gets it and knows what it is. And Fantasy Island, I think, is easily easy to communicate. It turns your, your greatest fantasies against you. It's a whole be careful what you wish for movie. Michael Pena is the, is the mysterious billionaire behind the island. I think... The same people who made Escape Room a hit, that audience will show up for this and turn this into a hit as well. Also saw a Red Band trailer for A Million Little Pieces based on the controversial book by James Frey. This movie was at Toronto last year with Aaron Taylor Johnson, directed by his wife, Sam Taylor Johnson. Right, I think, yeah. Uh, <laughs> and it's an, it's another addiction movie. Much like The Way Back, uh, although, you know, without the basketball element. Um, just looked very 
It, it look it looks gritty. I, I I think Aaron Taylor Johnson's a great actor. I haven't heard the, maybe the best things about this, and obviously it took a while to land distribution and to to actually hit theaters. But I don't know. This book touched people for a reason, whether it was bullshit or not. And if they can, if you know, if they can effectively bring that emotion to the screen, and I, and I do like the team behind this. I like Billy Bob Thornton as well, uh, who, who's in support. This I don't know. This this could be a nice little end of the year thing a, a nice end of the year surprise underneath the tree that people are just overlooking because it's not a quote-unquote awards contender you know speaking of awards contenders oh real, wait real quick before we transition to movies that i saw there was also a sonic the hedgehog trailer uh okay so they changed the design like were there really people who were not going to see this movie based on the design before and now that the the design has changed like now they're in uh, it just seems so silly i don't know why P- paramount ultimately capitulated to to the fans i don't I, again i don't know what the changes cost if it costs a million dollars maybe it's worth it if it costs 10 million dollars to change the main character in an entire movie I don't know that they're that they're really going to make that up at the box office now that the fans are happy. Um, this movie is what it is. Jim Carrey looks like he's just going for it. Uh, you're either going to love it or you're going to hate it. It's a very campy performance. Uh, I think that the date is also better. Like if Sonic had come out right on the heels of Terminator and, and flopped, like we, it'd be a tough time for Paramount. So I think it's it's a good thing that they ended up waiting for Valentine's Day. Although I don't know how many couples are going to be in a rush to go see the Sonic movie together. Anyways, back to award season. A bunch of movies coming out this week. Waves is one of them. I was really excited for Waves. I'd heard great things about it all year. Taylor Russell, uh, I've had the the pleasure of of hanging out with a little bit, getting to know. She's she's a really uh, talented young actress, up and coming. I think that this movie is going to open a lot of doors for her. She's also the star of Escape Room, which we just talked about, and she will be coming back for the sequel to that movie. Um, you know, Waves. I, I was really into it for the first half. Trey Edward Schultz shoots it almost like an episode of Euphoria. It, just, it has energy. It has atmosphere you just feel like something terrible is going to happen halfway through the movie and sure enough it does uh calvin harrison jr is really good uh sterling k brown but the movie is two distinct halves and the second half star you know starring taylor russell it's not that it's her because her performance is quite good but it kind of becomes like this moves from this exciting indie movie that's like euphoria to something that's like at a sundance 101 and the two halves did not really coalesce for me into a cohesive whole. And I just didn't – I didn't love the end of this movie either. I thought that there were some missed opportunities. Um, I, I, I would love to talk about this and, and what I hoped to have seen from it. It just wasn't there. And, and even like the, the score from uh, uh, Trent Reznor and Atticus Ross – who are always great. I mean, they, they're doing an amazing job on Watchmen. I, I was listening to the the Patriots Day soundtrack the other day, Social Network. Like, I love what those guys bring to the table. This just, I don't know that it, if it didn't fit or it just didn't really stand out for me. Uh, I preferred the score to Kelvin Harrison Jr.'s other movie this year, Loose. Um, so that did it for that. I also saw The Good Liar, another movie I had really high hopes for. Love the trailer for this. Love the premise. But unfortunately, it's one of these movies where the audience is just 10 steps ahead of the movie. Like, uh, obviously, this is Ian McKellen and Helen Mirren who have, who share top billing. And they're going head-to-head as con artists. Like, if you don't know that, that there's something up with Helen Mirren's character in this movie, and Bill Conner treats it like, 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 a, like a twist at the end, if you don't know that there's something up with her, you've never seen a movie before. I mean... I'm sorry. I don't mean to spoil it or give anything away, but come on, guys. Um, there were just a couple surprises like that that I thought were really quite predictable and other surprises that were super unpredictable, but I, they were like, really? Like, this was the choice? This is the motive? This is – I know Perry had some issues with, with some flashbacks in this movie, and so did I. It just didn't – it was entertaining, and I think that older audiences will like it, but it didn't really quite work for me. Um, I also saw Dark Waters, and I think the embargo is up on that. So I can say Todd Haynes does a good job 
with this eco-thriller. It's a solid movie, and Mark Ruffalo is his excellent self. But you have seen this movie before, and you've seen it many times before. You've seen it, whether it's Spotlight or The Insider or Aaron Brockovich or Civil Action. And I just felt like Ruffalo's character is not really put in the danger that he needed to be. Like, in The Insider... He comes home, Russell Crowe comes home to his house, and the house is empty. And his family is fucking gone, man. And it is devastating. And he gets a letter, and and that's that. And, you know, in this movie, the wife, Anne Hathaway, who has a very small role for Anne Hathaway, who who does get some big emotional scenes towards the end, she never really, like, you know, there's some grief there in the marriage, but she never really threatens to walk out on him. Same with the boss. The boss, Tim Robbins, should have been like, you know, you're out on your own. Like, this is, I agreed to, to let you look into this and for the firm to cover X amount of costs. But, you know, this is now costing us zillions. And, and what happened to all your other cases? And, you know, we can't have this. We got to let you go. There wasn't any of that. He was just like a supportive boss. He transitions into a supportive boss. And I feel like that had to go the reverse way. Um, so he needed more obstacles, Mark Ruffalo, in this movie, and that's why it just ultimately didn't work for me. But again, between this movie and the report and a couple of other movies I've seen this year, Paper deserves the Oscar for Best Supporting Actor or Best Supporting Actress, if you want to put a gender on paper. There's just so much paper in the report and in Dark Waters. What was the paper budget on these movies? Um, and then Queen and Slim. That's not out this weekend, I don't think, but the embargo did lift because it premiered at AFI. I saw it like a month ago, um, so it's not totally fresh in my mind. But I remember being really impressed. Like, I, I just, I loved, this is a really powerful love story at the end of the day. It's not the Black Bonnie and Clyde that is being sold. It is more like Thelma and Louise. Um, I love the way it was photographed. I love the music. Melina Matsukas does a great job. Lena Waithe does a great job. And I, and I really like the performances from Daniel Kaluuya and newcomer Jody Turner-Smith, uh, who hopefully you're going to be reading more about on Collider.com very soon. I, I read the trade reviews today, and I understand what they were saying where, like, you know, it's a little uneven. There were a couple of, like, there's a juxtaposition of sex and violence where there's a sex scene and then there's kind of like a, a, a race riot of sorts. And it didn't really work for me particularly the way that, that that juxtaposition ends. But the end of this movie is very powerful. And, and in an award season where many of the contenders have sort of flubbed their endings, in my opinion, I think it, it's, it speaks highly of Queen and Slim that they stick the landing on this one. Uh, and I think, like, the whole... There's just a physical reaction that I, that I noticed, that I had, and I noticed in the theater to the end of Queen and Slim that I haven't really seen almost since something like Hereditary, to be honest. And I don't, it, it's not like anybody's getting their head, you know, f- f- chopped off uh, looking out a window. It's not that kind of thing. But it does hurt. It hurts and you feel it. Um, and I think that that movie could surprise this award season. It may be a complete non starter, I may be kidding myself. But there's something about it that lingers. It has a, a quiet power to it. Um, and I think that will pretty much do it. I'm trying to think what else. Uh, I started watching the second season of You, and I'm very much embargoed, so I can't discuss it yet. But I did. I, I can say that I do like the new um, actress that they have, Victoria Pedretti. Uh, yeah, it's it's good to be back with uh, with Joe Greenberg. Um, and I will have more to say on that show, which is just kind of delightful trash. The first season was delightful trash. And uh, oh, I will say that it it has moved to Netflix. So, uh, and that's where I discovered the first season. The first season I don't think aired on Netflix. So I think it may have even been a Lifetime thing. But the 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 Netflix show, the second season, is a lot more, or at least the languages. The, the language is more adult. You get some F-bombs, some C-bombs in there. Uh, what else we got? That'll pretty much do it for the show. Uh, we're going to go to the Scandalous interview. But first, I am going to drop a little rumor of the week. I can't get any answers on this. Uh, nobody's saying Jack. I don't even know how real the project is. But let me just throw it out there just in case. A while back, we heard that Mel Gibson was going to be remaking The Wild Bunch. 
and the announced cast was like Jamie Foxx, Peter Dinklage, Michael Fassbender, and Mel Gibson. Now, I don't know if this is like still the plan or, you know, what is what, but I have heard that Russell Crowe, Oscar winner Russell Crowe, is going to be joining the, the Wild Bunch alongside Mel Gibson. I've heard he may play Dutch. Um, so, yeah, I mean, uh, the idea of Russell Crowe doing another Western after, you know, 310 to Yuma, which I th- think is really good. I think it's cool. Uh, I, I love Russell Crowe in the Roger Ailes series, The Loudest Voice, which I'm telling you, please see that before you watch Bombshell. Uh, because your reaction to Bombshell, I think, is going to be totally different based on whether you've seen that Showtime series or not. Russell Crowe did a great job as Zales, and, yeah, the idea of him working with Mel Gibson could be a lot of screaming on that set, Uh, (laughs) but I hope that that works out because that would be fun to see. All right, now we're going to our interview with Scandalous director Mark Landsman. This is the National Enquirer documentary. It is in select theaters and on VOD today, Friday, Please check it out. I had an absolute blast with it. Enjoy our interview, and thank you for listening to The Snyder Cut. You can find me on Twitter, Instagram, Cameo, at, at the Snyder. Uh, make sure to tell your friends and get them to subscribe, leave comments, whatever the hell it is. Thank you, and enjoy this scandalous interview. As promised at the top of the hour, here is our interview with Mark Landsman, the director of Scandalous, the true story of the National Enquirer. This was a fantastic documentary. It was really a delight. Mark, thanks for coming in. So good to be here. Thank you. So I grew up reading the Enquirer and Star and, and all this stuff. When I ever, I used my mother's bathroom because mom would buy the tabloids every week. She'd come home with like, you know, the groceries and the tabloids. Yes. yes. And, I'd, and I'd use her bathroom because it was a lot nicer than mine. Yes. And I'd sit there reading the tabloids. So yes. th- this was so fascinating to me. What made you want to do a documentary about like the National Enquirer? Right. Other than them being a, a, an effective laxative, right? Uh, <laughs> Now, uh, you know, I did not grow up reading The Enquirer. I was not uh, particularly uh, into those those publications. Uh, but I think that what made me do the film is I think like, like, like most of us, many of us, I, in like late 2015, early 2016, uh, I would get this sort of profound sense of vertigo every time I go to the supermarket. And I'm just standing there with my Cheerios and whatever in the line. And at every checkout counter, I'm learning that... Uh, Secretary Clinton is hooked on narcotics. And I'm like, wow, I didn't know that. Mm-hmm. You know, she's uh, on her way to jail. She's in a lesbian tryst. Shocking, all these things. Or maybe she's got six months to live. Um, she's she's several near right. death. She was always sick. I always remember. really near death. <laughs> right. It was just, just about to happen. And it was shocking. I didn't know. And then at the same time, I also didn't know that Donald Trump was the second coming of the Messiah. That was also total news to me. Right. Um, so, you know, th- that was very disturbing because it was so overtly propagandistic. It was like, how did that happen? You know, here we are. And, and it wasn't just, you know, a supermarket. It was every supermarket. Right. And it was in your face the same way that you're walking through Times Square. So, you know, I, and then the idea for the film took a little bit of time. About a couple months later in the spring of 2017, uh, a friend's father was in town and he invited us to dinner and drinks. And over that dinner, he starts regaling us with all these stories of his former career as a tabloid reporter at the National Enquirer in the 1970s. And he, you know, the more drinks we had, the, the more <laughs> fascinating the stories got. I mean, bribery, disguises, uh, crazy unconventional sourcing, you know, paying nurses at hospitals, hairstylists, agents, managers, disgruntled brother-in-laws. Sure. I mean, you name it. So... Uh, and and he just had he told us one particular anecdote of um, hiring a one man uh, submarine to go underneath Arionassis's yacht that was parked in the Palm Beach Harbor so that they could affix a sound device to the hole and listen to he and Jackie Onassis getting busy. Um, so it was Jackie wasn't oh, Jackie Onassis at that point, right? But you know those stories made me think like there's something here. So did you have any preconceptions about the Enquirer? Did you feel like it was all BS, the stuff that, that, that's on the cover? Or was there some legitimacy to it before you started really researching it? I used to think it was utterly ridiculous right. and false. And, and I didn't think that there was a shred of journalistic integrity in it before I started the project. I was pretty startled to learn of the actual history of it. Um, and what, what for us 
was most fascinating was uh, the Inquirer as a character itself. Like the, that's the main character of the movie, like sort of like a, a Frankenstein character mm-hmm. who gets invented by this whacked out mad scientist in the late 50s. Um, he wasn't whacked out. He was quite brilliant, actually. <laughs> uh, the latter scientist maybe is a little more whacked out. but um, and, and was really designed to uh, give the average American woman a form of escapism. You know, your sons are off in Vietnam. Uh, Nixon's up to hanky-panky in the water house in, 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 with Watergate. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, uh, our cities are on fire with racial strife, gas lines, and all, all that. And here's something that's a form of escape to take you away from that. You're going to read about Liz Taylor's uh, weight gain or weight loss. You're going to learn about uh, the latest UFO landing in Roswell or uh, what Gene Dixon has to predict about, you know, whether or not your husband is still going to be in love with you next year, you know, all this stuff. And, um, and, and that's, that's what it was, but what it became is really interesting. So, so the documentary takes us through some incredible stories and it really, like you really did change my mind in terms of like, the Inquirer changed history. It changed global history in terms of like uh, the with the with the front runner guy. I'm sorry, the politician Gary, Gary Hart. Hart. Right, right, right. To, to, to sort of walk us through some of the scandals that you uh, show in this movie. We, we, you know, there were so many that we had to choose from that we had to make right. some choices, and so we decided on the ones that really. Uh, both were pivotal in the culture and were really instrumental to the evolution of the paper. Um, so Elvis uh, dying, mm-hmm. being the single image that sold more tabloids in, in, than any other in history. Right, that photo's iconic. Iconic, sold 7 million copies, which meant that over 25 million people were reading it, um, really put the Enquirer on the map. Um, and then in the 80s, John Belushi, of course, mm-hmm. um, the first time that the Enquirer got involved in investigative reporting and um, some serious ethical violations there. That was really fascinating. Um, and then moving towards the first time that the walls between a public and private uh, politician came tumbling down, which was the Gary Hart situation, where they where they pulled out all the stops and spent, a, you know, close to $90,000 to get a photograph of Gary Hart with Donna Rice, which ended his chances of ever becoming the president. Right, and then Bush gets in there, yeah. and then eventually we get Bush Jr., and it's just like, it's, it's incredible. It's a, it's a, yeah. The way that you connect certain dots. It's, it's, a, it's a domino effect, and you realize that, you know, uh, you don't really give this tabloid much credit for just how... Uh, profound the ripples can be by decisions that they make did you have a did you have like a favorite segment to research or or, you know cut together i you know i think the 90s was phenomenal because i love the ojs yeah that's what i'm talking about so like the 90s is this interesting vortex where you have this uh this paper that most people were lining their kitty litter with and some people thought it was true ish you know and um but in the 90s with OJ, that's the first time that you begin to see this weird sort of um, confluence of legit- you know, legitimate mainstream media kind of giving the Inquirer cred and saying, wow, we used to look down on you guys, but you actually did something right with the OJ story because we're chasing you guys for mm-hmm. the story. Um, the and, and suddenly you've got the editor-in-chief of the National Enquirer on Larry King Live, and he's being, you know, he's one of Time Magazine's most influential people of 97, and um, you've got the New York Times calling the Enquirer required reading, um, and you start to get this weird blurring of the lines between tabloids and mainstream media, mm-hmm. and, you know, we all kind of know what happens because of that. And can you talk about sort of the, the – wasn't there kind of a tinge of mob influence over the whole sort of thing? Like, I don't want to get you whacked here, but <laughs> – Thank you so much for that. I was convinced it, I was going to get whacked on the way over. <laughs> um, it's, it's a fascinating history. The, the guy who created the Enquirer, his name was Generoso Pope Jr. His mm-hmm. father was Generoso Pope Sr., who was the most powerful Italian-American in New York City at the time. Mm-hmm. He owned a company – uh, that poured the cement for Radio City Music Hall and Rockefeller Center. Gotcha. Um, so, um, I, you know, <laughs> figure it out. <laughs> and uh, and uh, his father also was the publisher of Il Progresso, which was the largest Italian-American weekly in the country. Okay. So, as somebody says in the film, they didn't have to worry about politicians because they owned all the politicians. And they were also above the fray in terms of organized crime. I have no evidence to point to the Pope family being involved at all uh, on, a, on a specific level with right. organized crime. But, 
you know, Frank Costello was Gene Pope Jr.'s godfather. Frank Costello was the head of a major crime family in New York. He lent his godson $75,000 and said, go make something yourself, kid. And with that 75,000 bucks, he purchased the New York Inquirer in 1952. It was a crappy little paper that was about horse racing and Mm -hmm. not much, had like 17,000 in circulation. And that was the paper that he decided he was going to Built his fortune. That was the start. That's 17,000. That was the foundation. That was it. But 17,000 wasn't satisfying to him. He's right. like, you know, I want, I want to be as big as my father. I want to be bigger than my father. Sure. Um, because he was also a black sheep of his family. He was on the outs with his family. Mm-hmm. And so he, uh, the story goes that he was driving down the, one of the New York uh, parkways in the uh, mid 50s and he sees this horrific car crash and there's mangled bodies right. and, mm-hmm. you know, blood everywhere. And, He's looking out, and there's hundreds of people rubbernecking to get a look right. at the carnage, and that's when he has this epiphany that that's the kind of thing he wants to put on the front pages of his newspaper. People can't resist a train wreck. Yeah, it leads, it leads, <laughs> and uh, and it bled, and it led, you know, a lot, and he shot his circulation shot through the roof. So you mentioned, you know, some of the choices that you had to make in, in terms of the storylines that the documentary pursues, because it's a very economical documentary. I feel like it's like what ninety minutes or right around yeah, just there? over that, yeah, like yeah, 96, 96, yeah. 96. Um like, so what kind of uh, things got left on the cutting room floor? Well, you know, it's interesting. Everybody's like, well, why didn't you mention John Edwards? What's your problem? Like, are, do you not know that that happened? And I think, of course, we knew that John Edwards happened. We knew that, you know, Whitney Houston's death was a big issue. But, you know, all these things had to, we had to make choices because the Inquirer covered thousands of stories. So we only focused on the ones that truly were the like the unprecedented moments, the ones that changed the paper. Right. So we didn't do John Edwards because we did Gary Hart. Mm-hmm. And they were Gary Hart was the was the first and pivotal one. Um, I like the Princess Die stuff. Yeah, that, and and even like the Oprah stuff, like uh, with the, with the um, black reporter who was saying that we wanted to appeal to a black audience. We started putting b- black celebrities on the cover. That was yeah. fascinating. It's true. I mean, you didn't see black celebrities in uh, the Enquirer, with the exception of Cosby um, and you know Sammy Davis back in the day. But you didn't before the before the nineties, really, before um, Michael Jackson, Whitney Houston, and Oprah. Uh, so, so you'd also alluded to sort of the ethical violations and stuff, and, and so I wanted to go back to the Belushi story because that was really where the reporters felt like they had crossed a line. They'd gotten this woman really intoxicated and basically got her to admit that she killed Belushi. Yeah, they basically um, found Catherine uh, Evelyn Smith, who was John Belushi's uh, drug dealer. She was the drug dealer for a lot of very famous people in Hollywood at the time. They called her Kathy Silverbags because she used to carry heroin in her purse. Um, and, you know, it was really part of Hollywood lore and, at that time in the, in the 70s and 80s. Um, anyways, you know, she had allegedly shot Belushi up with a fatal dose of heroin. Um, and then she had fled to uh, the LAPD dropped the case. So it was just basically they thought that it was just, a, you know, an overdose, an accidental overdose. And she had fled to Canada. And the Inquirer sent two reporters up to Toronto. They found her, uh, and they sequestered her for 10 days in a hotel room and partied with her big time. Uh, How they partied, I do not know. They wouldn't talk about it. Um, But it was very clear that they spent intimate time with her, one of them in particular intimate time with her, and uh, got all this information and then used an uh, an Inquirer tactic um, called a readback which is a very um, completely ethically uh, inappropriate tactic in terms of journalism, which is that you're recording somebody and um, you turn off the tape and you get them to say exactly what they want to say by paraphrasing it back to them. And then they do what you just did, which is nod your head and say, yeah, that's about it. But meanwhile, who knows? Maybe they're blitzed out of their mind when you're asking them. Mm -hmm. And then you're slapping that on the front page of the National Enquirer and saying, she said, I killed John Belushi. Or she said, "Um, I shot, I was like Florence Nightingale with a hypodermic needle. That's not what she said. She just agreed with something. She just nodded as an Enquirer reporter said, well, it sounds like you're Florence Nightingale with a hypodermic needle. Is that right? And she nods her head. Well. That's enough corroboration to get. That's what that's what some of these guys mean when they said, you know, the reporting in the Inquirer was fakeish. Uh-huh. Like there was always they called it the nub of truth. There was like a little nugget of truth. But you had to elevate it a little and, to, and blow it up. Yeah, you had to make it sensational. Now I'm I am sort of the breaking news reporter here at Collider. I mean, <laughs> I've been breaking news at, at the trades for for a decade and. You know, there is an element of, of uh, partying with sources, you know, going out to these parties and, and whether it's sharing a joint or, you know, buying a source, a bunch of drinks one night. Like, 
I don't know where it's like where is that line these days and like you know how is it because I would love to be able to just pay sources and I'm sure that there are still places maybe like TMZ that do pay sources I think it's a really tricky line that even somebody like Maggie Haberman has perspective on and says look you'll pay for photos uh, you can pay for somebody uh, to travel in to talk to you. Uh, you can certainly take, as you just suggested, you can take someone out for dinner and a beer in L.A. and right. talk to them. But are you um, are you paying them for the information? Right. Are you um, also are you plying them? Mm-hmm. Um, and then are you actually sort of rephrasing what they're saying so it fits your interpret? That's different. I see. Like, do you have your own agenda when you're coming in, or are you mm-hmm. genuinely interested in giving the, getting the information from them? So I don't see any problem ethically with taking someone out for a drink right. or two or three, just as long as you're not sitting there uh, twisting their words around so that it fits what you want to put on your on your site. Sure. Yeah. Um, I don't know. Like, in terms of uh, the people that you spoke to, was, was there someone who had just like uh, crazy stories or like, well, you know, almost, I almost yeah. want your perspective on the types of people that that job uh, uh, appealed to. You know, what's so cool about this thing is that which, which blew my mind is. The types of people, I mean, you have people who started their careers at the National Enquirer that went on to be the heads of Good Morning America and were producing with Diane Sawyer. You had people that went on and became, you know, captains of publishing. Um, you know, one, one woman in particular became the most successful woman in publishing, Judith Regan. So, you know, you have people who, who, who cut their teeth at the Enquirer and then went on. And then you have, you know, what I call sort of the lifers. And the lifers are pretty, I mean, that's a pretty intense thing to do for 30, 40 years of your life. Easy to get burned out real quick. Well, they never got burned out because they were all adrenaline junkies. Right. And it's hard to get burned out when you have unlimited amounts of cash and you're encouraged to spend it. If you don't spend a lot of cash, your boss is going back and going, what's wrong with you? Yeah. Are you not getting the story? Go out and spend more money, Mm -hmm. you know? And um, you were, you know, if if Sean and Madonna were staying at the Ritz in Paris, you were at the Ritz in Paris. Mm -hmm. If you were, if they were on a yacht or first class, you were just behind them in first class. I mean, they, they liked that. They also liked the fact that it was never the same story twice. There's a guy who said, you know, one day I'm in Hong Kong, one day I'm at a temple of snakes in India, you know? So for a lot of people, that's fantastic. And they kind of make, they can sort of like push the ethics of what they're doing under the rug. I mean, you look at a you look at a, a paparazzi photographer. You know, there's like a there's a rush of what they're doing. Um, is it ethical to be hounding a woman and her children as she's trying to buy groceries or trying to enjoy right. a day at a park? I don't know. You know. I mean, I, I know that there are people in this town who who uh, are not a fan of me. But it's like, you know, I don't care who people sleep with in the sound. I don't care what drugs they're doing. I just care about the work yeah. and, and who's doing what projects. Um, and so it's just, I don't know. I, I also am fueled by that adrenaline rush. So yeah. I could really relate to some of the stuff in this documentary and some of the people in it. Yeah, and what you do and what a lot of people would argue these, these men and women at the Inquirer did was kind of like keep power in check. The problem is, is that, it wasn't really keeping power in check. It was working in cahoots with power right, to make sure is... that power kind of was comfortable. And that was the part of this thing that's it, really... Isn't that the Hollywood trades, you know? That's, like... the, that's what I'm saying. I mean, the, and the operative word, perfect, is trades. Right. You know, this story, what really surprised me was this stuff goes back to the era of Bob Hope. You know, mm-hmm. when this golden era of Hollywood where, you know, we like to think, I mean, yeah, there's like Black Dahlia and all these things where you think, oh, Hollywood had a very dark side. But mm-hmm. what people don't realize is that there was this very active system in place where a celebrity, their lawyer and publicist and the National Enquirer had this like weird triumvirate. Sure. It was a strange menage a trois. And, and there's give and take. It's like, kill this story and we'll give you this story. There's trade-offs made. That's, and they never said kill. Like, the, see, the, the whole catch and kill thing like that's a very contemporary idea. That's more uh, that that's sort of in the era of these New Yorker stories. You talk to these old Inquirer guys; they're like, "We never called it that. We just right. called it a trade out. Right. We would call up Bob Hope's publicist and we would say, "Look, we know X Y Z about Mr. Hope. We right. know it's true, um, and uh, we'll run it." But maybe you have um, an interesting lead into how we might spend Christmas with the Hopes. Right. Um, maybe see what's under interviews. the tree. Maybe see what life is like on the golf cart as we're riding around the course or whatever. So, you know, and in exchange for that, the scandal goes away. And, that's, and Hollywood has a really long history of that. It's only when this line is crossed with Catch and Kill that it gets really sketchy and scary. Mm-hmm.
um, because that's how we get and you know find ourselves in the situation. I mean, where... o- only recently have I seen the trades really call Hollywood to task with all the Me Too stuff. I mean, they've been taking down captains of industry and and, and gigantic moguls and. and you know, I don't know if you would have seen that 10, 15 years ago. I mean, I mean, I went after Harvey Weinstein when I was at the trades 10 years ago. I couldn't get it done because the atmosphere around it, it just didn't exist. I think um, when you say that, it just makes me um, really thankful for the kind of journalism that's going on right now. Mm-hmm. You know, people are always like, God, aren't you depressed? Isn't this, are, are you hopeful about anything after making a movie about the National Enquirer? And mm-hmm. I say, hell yeah, I'm hopeful. I have a lot of... Uh, faith in what's going on in journalism right now across the board, be it Kim Masters, yourself, Kim Masters, yeah. come on, be it Ronan Farrow, be it Megan Tuohy and Jody Cantor, yep. m- people like Maggie and Peter Baker at the Times, Ashley Parker, you know, you, Mike Schmidt, we're, we're in a new era of journalism. And it's so great. I mean, because I think that people are being taken to task and paradigms are shifting. Um, and it's just about continuing to just pull away the veils and get transparent about what's really going on and how things work. You know, it's amazing to me that people still think that, you know, something in the Inquirer is just, is true, you know, or something that they watch in their echo chamber of news Mm -hmm. is true and that they don't take a second to question, like, uh, is there a bias here inherent in my source? Is this, am I getting my news from a fact-based place or am I just kind of sponging it up because it makes me feel good? Right. Because people, people just want their views reflected back to them. And I know it's frustrating to me as someone who does work hard to confirm, uh, you know, stories to see, you know, the, the weirdest rumors just run rampant on the Internet. And that's the stuff that gets passed around and picked up, yeah. uh, even though it's nonsense. Oh, it's very American. I mean, we're, we're so addicted. Gossip is like crack. We're so addicted to it. Um, And and so the end of your film sort of brings it back to to Trump and and David Pecker and and this whole new ownership. And and, I mean, did you run into any roadblocks with any of that stuff? Because that seems like it was the most sensitive stuff, given where we are right now. Only people's fear of reprisal, Uh you know. So we ran into, you know, we, we had no problem getting access to anybody to have conversations but people would say, well, this is entirely off the record and I can't talk to you on film. I'm happy to talk to you, but not talk to you. Right. And, um, but there were, you know, we tried to get David Pecker and Dylan Howard to be in the film. We tried to get uh, Barry Levine to be in the film. We tried to get people, uh, other people to be in the film. And, and, you know, we were just, we were declined. Um, they let us on for a while, right. made, me th- made us think maybe they would do it. And then, you, you know, the email finally would arrive. I'm sorry, we, we don't make it a practice of sharing the inge- investigative practices or tactics of our reporters or journalists, you know, did, and that was it. Did you approach any celebrities who'd been the constant, uh, like, cover, uh, subjects of coverage in the Inquirer at all? No, I'm, I'm really glad you asked that question because um, a few people who've seen the film said, well, why didn't you talk to, say, I don't know, say an Alec Baldwin or, you know, somebody who was the frequent target and see what they thought? You know, and I, I think there have been plenty of projects and, and coverage of how celebrities feel being at the other end of paparazzi or tabloids that wasn't this story and when you're telling a story about something you just have to make you, you, we had to make some choices right and it really isn't about um how people felt mm-hmm. it was more about like how this what this paper said about us over the last 60 years what did it say about americans you know, you know, that's that was more of the interest rather than. And by the way, and then where do you stop? What, what, what celebrity doesn't have something to say about it? I'd have to, you know, it's how many we, the whole right. film would be that. So what, what do you think is the future of this industry? Do you think it's just going to be online? It's going to be the Laney gossips and TMZs or Perez Hilton's or whatever. Or do you think that this paper will always sort of be there with you at that supermarket? <laughs> Oh, my God. You know, um, I think that Judith Regan says it in the film really, really well. Actually, she said it, and I don't think it made it into the film. She said, you know, the Inquirer is Twitter today. We're there. The Twitterverse is the Inquirer. Mm -hmm. I mean, you've got now, and now the tabloid reporter is anybody who wants to be a tabloid reporter. Tabloid reporter is the president of the United States. Mm -hmm. You know, (laughs) he's his own tabloid. You know, anybody with a cell phone, really. But he's got, you know, tens of millions of readers every second. Mm -hmm. That's crazy. That's what the Inquirer has become. That's that's the that's the bizarre grandchild that's running around, kind of metastasizing faster than we can even think. I feel like everybody gets to be their own editor. <laughs> yeah, and you know who has time to check a fact in that universe? Right. I mean, I don't mean to sound like such a downer, but it is it is interesting. So you know, all the more reason why I think we got to be vigilant. 
Um, and and uh, your film, so your film opens Friday, November 15th. Yeah. It's going to be in, in theaters? Yeah, it's going to be in theaters in select theaters, select cities, like 15 different cities. And okay, then, so is it, not, is it not doing a day and date uh, VOD release or anything like that? It is, it is? It is as well, okay, so yeah. So you'll be able to watch it at home as well. And then on CNN in uh, 2020. Okay, and then did you guys submit for the Oscar? You guys in, in that 160... Feature. It came out the other day. I just didn't get to look at the whole thing. We are. Okay, well, go, I mean, good luck. I'm going to be rooting for you. This is definitely one of the best documentaries I have seen all year. Uh, Mark, thanks for coming in. Make sure so to much. check out Scandalous. It was really fantastic. Um, and that will do it for this episode of The Snyder Cut. Uh, tune in next week. Uh, this It'll be our last episode before the Thanksgiving break. We'll talk a little uh, award stuff and maybe another rumor of the week. Thank you for listening. It's that little Chico Pitbull, Mr. 305, better said Mr. Worldwide, and I'm here to tell you about my new podcast, From Negative to Positive, brought to you by my friends over at State Farm. I believe that to have success, you got to play the game, so that the game doesn't play you. You know, the biggest risk you take is not taking one. It's very important that you make sure that you make the most out of your money, especially when it comes to insurance. State Farm offers surprisingly great rates. They have great agents standing by helping you personalize your coverage. All this is backed up by award-winning, easy-to-use technology. It's a great price with an even greater service. When you want the real deal, like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Want to hear something amazing? Discover matches all the cash back you earn on your credit card at the end of your first year, automatically, dollar for dollar, with no limit on how much you can earn. Extra cash? Come on, how amazing is that? In fact, it's even more amazing when you realize all the places where Discover is accepted. 99% of places in the U.S. that take credit cards. So when it comes to Discover, get used to hearing yes more often. Learn more at discover.com slash yes. 2020 Nielsen Report limitations apply.